I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard. But by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the programme grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash history hack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello, welcome back to History Hack and uh, Pole Position. Pole Position is back, ladies and gentlemen. We are talking about lots of Polish history. And I've got some right doozies for you guys because I've gone out of the box. I know Alex keeps saying World War II, World War II, stop with the World War II. But I don't care. I've got loads of World War II lined up, but I also got non-World War II. We've got the Piast Dynasty coming up. And today's is actually really, really interesting because I was on Twitter, spotted the book and I went, holy shit, I need this in my life. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce my guest. I've got Piotr Puchalski, who's an author, historian and lecturer at the Pedagogical, Pedagog- I can't say this, Pedagogical University of Krakow. And he's recently published this new book, this book that I've seen on Twitter, which is titled Poland in a Colonial World Order. I mean, come on, people. Would you really put Poland and colonialism together? Well, you're about to find out. Welcome, Piotr. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so ecstatic and excited to be doing this today. Hello, Alina. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. This is this is awesome because we actually met up for coffee. Was it last week? Yes, it was on Friday. Yeah, we met up for coffee. So anybody who saw my Twitter with the cake, yeah, that was that was me and Piotr hanging out and chatting and eating you didn't cake. Didn't tag me though, so I'm uh, <laughs> upset about that, but that's all right. <laughs> but it's look, I'm I'm so excited about this because thinking about Poland, okay, you just you just don't think colonialism at all, and I was I was on Twitter. I came across your book, and I was like, "My God, I need this in my life. I need to follow this. Who is this guy bringing out this totally out of the box stuff?" Well, uh, where where should I start? Uh, well, Poland was never a colonial power. However, it had colonial aspirations. So, years ago, when I was working on my master's uh, back at uh, New York University, oh no, actually that was my bachelor's. Oh man, I'm getting old. Um, I came up on this trivia article online and uh, it was about Poland's uh, mission to Liberia in the mid 1930s and it had a sensationalist title 
Poland wanted to colonize Liberia or something like that. And that really inspired me to dig deeper and understand why the Polish state uh, and certain Polish institutions wanted to engage with Africa in the 30s. So that was the sort of the genesis of the book. My bachelor's thesis, a short article, a short thesis that turned into an article. And then uh, I went on to do my PhD at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And the book is uh, based on the dissertation. So... So that's a long story short regarding the genesis. You know what's really interesting? It always starts with one of those kind of trivial articles. You know, it's a comment somebody makes or a joke. You think it's actually actually a joke. I think recently for me was I helped a, a young lady with her homework for Auschwitz. And it's inspired me to probably end up writing this uh, article of, of like bad things written about Auschwitz. And it was some of the biggest mistakes ever. In, and people are reading this sort of stuff. So it kind of inspires you. Either it's a mistake or it's something just so trivial that kind of goes, wow, okay, let's do this. Let's look deeper into this. How do I change people's minds? How do I inspire people? Right. So in, in the case of this trivia article I mentioned, it wasn't even wrong. It was just simplistic. They were reducing all of this down to nationalism, anti-Semitism, and all of these factors played a role in these colonial aspirations of Poland in the 30s. But that's not the whole story. So that's why I just kept digging and digging and discovered that this is way more complicated than um, just a way of... Uh, inscribing Poland into, into the club of great powers in the interwar period. This is, this is way deeper. So we can talk about that. We on History Hack know what it's like to fall down a rabbit hole. We have all fallen down, many of them, and our listeners have fallen down, many of them. So we're all very well aware of how this, how this process pretty much works. And then you kind of, you just have to keep going. Uh, can't stop. That's right. Okay, do you know what? Let's get into a bit of this history because some of our listeners may not actually know about Poland a lot. I mean, they've been learning. People have been learning about Poland from my podcast because we've been doing things like the Piast dynasty and uh, what else did we do? Uh, we did uh, medieval history and and churches and religion and, and all sorts of things. But we haven't yet touched like when Poland was torn apart for 200 years. Give us this very, very quick, very, very quick brief idea of what the situation of Poland was pre-1918. Oh God, is that even possible? It is possible. Give us, give us, right, give us so, this like, uh, I don't know, in, in 10 sentences, go. This is a challenge for you now. Okay, this is a great challenge. So between 1795 and 1918, Poland is partitioned between three powers, Prussia, then the German Empire, Russia, the Romanov Empire, and Austria-Hungary, uh, the Habsburg monarchy. So yes, the, Poland, the Polish lands are divided up by these three powers. There is Galicia, the Austrian partition, which uh, in the late 19th century gets some autonomy, but it's still you know, not independent Poland. Uh, there is, of course, the Prussian partition, the Grand Duchy of Posen or Poznan, West Prussia, etc. Kulturkampf, you know, attempts to assimilate Poles to, to fight with Catholicism, to fight with the Polish language and uh, the Polish entrepreneurship and so on. And of course, the Russian uh, partition, the Kingdom of Poland, then called the uh, Vistula Land after the January uprising of uh, 1863. Until 1830, it's somewhat, somewhat, let's say, autonomous. Then, of course, with each uprising, it becomes less and less autonomous. So, uh, yes, so Poland is, is divided up by its neighbors. And of course, then comes World War I in 1914. So you have uh, the central powers. Uh, so two of the partitioning powers fighting against the third one, Russia. 
Uh, and at the end of the day, they lose. And uh, as you know, there is also the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. So the, the Polish leaders managed to uh, to regain independence for the country, right? Yusutsky uh, is a central figure here, but uh, also Roman Dmowski and Ignacy Paderewski in, um, in Paris and London. They're, of course, uh, working uh, with uh, the Entente to, to persuade them to recognize uh, the need for Polish independence, right? So we have Yusutsky sort of doing the military um, work and then the other the other leaders uh, doing the diplomatic work. And at the end of the day, Poland becomes independent in 1918, thanks to the fall of the empires, but also thanks to these uh, military and diplomatic um, efforts. So probably like 50 sentences. Sorry about that. But no, well done, ladies and gentlemen, Polish history in a nutshell, which is kind of giving you an idea of where we're going with this. Because to be honest, I should have pulled off some other people to kind of give us this background information. So we're kind of going back to front now. So if you want to know more, keep listening in for, for future podcasts where we're going to be talking about like the interwar periods and, and blah, 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 and everything else. But right. So we were at the stage. Poland has now gained, regained its independence. 1918. Yay. Place the Polish national anthem right here. Uh, might see if we can stick that in. Uh, because it hasn't, it's still on the map now. So Poland is now going through a total, can we say crisis at this stage? Because it's now having to reform its government, reform its economy, reform yeah, social life. Crisis. You can certainly call it a crisis. Because I mean, we, it's, it's crazy, right, at this stage. So together from at least four different political and economic systems, right? Exactly. Poland, the part, the Prussian partition, Galicia. Then you have the lands in the east that uh, had been incorporated directly into the Russian Empire. So at least four different mechanisms, state mechanisms, apparatuses you need to uh, patch back together. So, so uh, well, this brings me on to a really interesting question because, I mean, it's going through this crisis. Why is Poland interested in colonialism? I mean, where does all of this fall into? Of that. That's a great question. That's it's precisely because of this crisis. That's right. It it sees colonialism, or at least some form of engagement with the colonial world order, the colonial system, as a remedy for all kinds of domestic problems, especially after 1929, during the Great Depression, which exacerbates all of these problems. Right. So you have unemployment in the countryside. You have emigration. You have uh, political turmoil, at least until 1926, you have uh, national tensions, right? You have some anti-Semitism, which gets worse in the 1930s. You have the Polish-Ukrainian tensions in the East as a result of Poland uh, winning territory back uh, from Soviet Russia in 1920-1921. You have the conflict with Lithuania over Vilnius. So you have all, all kinds of problems, but let's say the colonial aspirations are supposed to solve at least two of them. The economic problem of unemployment and what's considered overpopulation in the countryside and the minority problem. So there you have the Madagascar project, right, which, um, which is supposed to provide an alternative national home for Jews. Well, let's 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 because you we, we've got this on the list to talk about Madagascar. So, I mean, let's stick with that stuff. You've mentioned it. Let's stick with it. Madagascar. When we list think, well, when we think of Madagascar, if you've studied the Holocaust, you think the instantaneous idea by by the Germans in the 1940s to think, oh, OK, we're going to dump them on an island or the, the whole Jewish population. I mean, is this the same thing? Is this a different idea? I mean, what is this project? I would say it's related, but it's different. It's not meant to be genocidal. 
It's meant to be actual settlement that is uh, supposed to provide Jews with opportunities to, to farm the land, to work, to live. Uh, you know, Hitler and the Germans, they wanted to turn Madagascar into a site of genocide, right? Um, they, they were supposed to be supervised by the SS. The, the Jews couldn't leave a certain area of Madagascar. Uh, they were supposed to basically be worked to death. I mean, it, let, let's not fool ourselves. It was, it, it was a genocidal project. Here you have the Polish government, the French government, um, negotiating a limited but steady inflow of Jews, but not only Jews, into Madagascar starting in 1937. Then, of course, the project, the project ends because of a change in the French government. Uh, the Popular Front loses the election in 1938 and, and the in the spring, and uh, the new right-wing French government considers this, uh, this project of uh, moving Polish Jews and Eastern European Jews to Madagascar a danger for political reasons because the French colonists in Madagascar are opposed they think that the Jews will create problems with the native Malagasy, with the native population. They will be competing for the same jobs. They don't trust that the Jews can adapt to farming. So uh, they, they, the French, these French colonists assume that they will to towns and to take away jobs not only from the uh, Malagasy but also from the Hindus, which uh, from the from the Indians who who live there and sort of serve as this, this intermediary economic role. So long story short, yes, the project is abandoned in 1938. And of course, uh, the rationale, uh, the motivation, the motive for it is partly anti-Semitic, uh, but it also stems from this broader problem, which is agricultural uh, overpopulation in Central and Eastern Poland, especially after the Great Depression. I mean, in 1935, as you know, all over the world, you have the phenomenon called the price scissors, right? The, the price of Agricultural products falls well behind the price of uh, industrial products, right? So these this, this scissors. And in 1935, in Poland, uh, farmers need twice as much produce to buy the same amount of industrial goods as they did in 1929. And also only 10%, only 10% of all farms are rentable, produce profit. So huge, huge economic problems in Poland in the 1930s and industry cannot develop fast enough to alleviate these agricultural problems to absorb so-called excess peasants looking for jobs outside of agriculture uh, because raw materials are expensive despite the great crisis, despite the great depression. They're expensive because Poland doesn't have access to any territories that have cotton, that have rubber, that could power the industry of wood, the textile factories, and so on. So this is the other side of these colonial aspirations, right? Um, acquiring maybe not colonies per se, but at least colonial concessions, economic concessions in Africa, especially in Africa, so that Poland, uh, the Polish state, the Polish industry can buy raw materials, can mine raw materials cheaper than before. So on the one hand, you have the Jews. On the other hand, you have the economy, right? Winning colonial concessions in Africa is meant to both provide an outlet for the Jews, but also provide areas where raw materials can be obtained uh, more inexpensively. Well, this sort of makes it makes sense. The economical sense, it, it, it just it works because Poland hasn't got these raw materials that they need to develop. So you've mentioned Africa. Where else do they end up going? Apart from Africa, I mean, do they end up in, for example, Japan? Where else do they go? Mm, 
the Polish uh, state statesman to obtain raw materials. Or... Yeah. So apart from Africa, where else do they end up going? Well, uh, they well they import. They they don't go anywhere. They import, right? They import from uh, the French possessions in North Africa, the French protectorates, Morocco, let's say, phosphates. They import from South America. They import from uh, from the U.S. So they they really just have to rely on classic economic channels to to obtain raw materials for the industry. But it's it's not enough. It's it's too expensive. Now remember, Poland never abandons the gold standard. It needs to pay its debts back. It, its currency, the złoty, is not flexible, right? Um, so on the one hand, the Polish state is uh, has to spend a lot of money to balance its budget to balance the the foreign debts especially the French ones, because, uh, I mean, it needs the French alliance, right? The, the geopolitical situation is tense. Nazi Germany is, is making incursions into Europe, right? So, so on the one hand, um, it needs to balance its budget, it needs to pay its, uh, its creditors, and on the other hand, it needs to buy raw materials. So it's just not enough to, to really develop the industry. I'm really interested in this because this comes up in your book, actually, the idea of emigrants and colonists. Can you explain to our listeners what the difference is? Yeah. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. So, well, the, the thing is that the Poles, uh, these Polish colonial activists conflate the two. They conflate emigrants with colonists. As they attempt to turn Polish emigrants uh, into colonists, and this is especially evident in South America. Uh, so even before the same people, the same Polish statesmen become interested in obtaining colonial concessions in Africa, uh, they have this idea of using existing Polish clusters of emigrants in places like South Brazil, the state of Paraná, especially in places like Northern Argentina, the, the region of Misiones, as uh, centers of Polish farming, as, as, as centers of Polish trade. So they uh, they think that these peasants, these uh, these people who went there to look for a better life, uh, to simply to you know to to improve the standard of living, can now work for the Polish state abroad uh, and serve as these uh, both uh, intermediaries in trade, but also but also people who will mine and farm specific products. So you have the Polish state sending agricultural experts and emigration activists to these places in South America to try to consolidate them and to direct their efforts to particular tasks that will benefit Poland. This starts in the 1920s and continues into the 1930s, but for reasons of domestic political changes in South America, in Brazil and Argentina, it becomes more and more difficult to maintain these so-called Polish colonies. Uh, because there is a rise of nationalism in Brazil, especially with Getulio Vargas coming to power. And the Brazilians, and to some extent the Argentinians, are um, afraid that maintaining the very Polish character of these settlements poses a threat to, to Brazil, right? To Argentina, to their sort of national unity, let's say. So, yes, so emigrants are being used as colonists with some limited success by the Polish government into the mid-30s, mid not, not later than that. It just doesn't work anymore. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm interested because you talk a lot about governmental changes. I mean, obviously, Poland also had a lot of changes within government. Does this affect this whole idea of colonialism at all? I mean, we all know Piłsudski kind of sat in the background for all of this at the end of the day, but nevertheless... Right. So, uh, so the idea of using Polish emigrants as colonists in South America actually predates Piłsudski's coup d'etat. Some right-wingers, uh, some Andesia supporters are partial to this, that uh, they support this uh, project. However, the, the process of channeling emigration to South America accelerates after Piłsudski's coup d'etat. And then the same people realizing the change that are taking place in South America with, you know, Getulio Vargas coming to power and uh, the whole area becoming uh, more nationalistic and more hostile to Polish settlement, to sort of consolidated Polish settlement. These same statesmen now turn to Africa. And that's when, uh, that's when um, they lobby the Polish government, now the Sanatia, the Piłsudski government regime, to uh, work within the League of Nations and work um, with um, Western partners such as Portugal and France to persuade them to grant concessions, economic concessions, but also settlement concessions uh, in these powers' colonies, such as Angola, such as the uh, mentioned uh, Madagascar. So there is this shift around the uh, time of the Great Depression from South America to Africa, from channeling immigration to southern Brazil and northern Argentina toward um, working for these colonial concessions in Africa. So there is, yes, there is actually some continuity uh, when it comes to promoting colonial policies in, in Poland under Piłsudski. So, I mean, there are no major government changes in Poland. Uh, obviously, there's uh, Piłsudski's death in 1935, right? That's, that's a major shift, let's say, a major change. And it does, it does result in less emphasis placed on Polish colonial demands being put forward to fulfill actual economic aims. Now it's more a question of diplomacy after 1935. And we can talk about that if you like. Because that's yeah. another dimension to this whole complicated story. Yeah, and let's throw that in because, you know, obviously that shift is quite interesting. A lot of people might not understand, uh, obviously, this 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 whole dynamic and, and the issue of uh, the political shift and everything else. But give us, give us a little bit of an idea before you throw into the colonialism side, but just for our listeners who don't know Polish history in the interwar period, give us a little bit of a background and then hit us with the colonialism. All right. I'm making your job so much harder today, right? No, it's all right. Um, <laughs> I think I'm <laughs> making my own, my own story more complicated than it should be. Right. So, um, so as I said, in the first half of the 30s, 
the Polish state working with this institution called the Maritime and Colonial League, these Polish activists, is putting forward colonial demands in the international forum for economic reasons, right? Uh, to obtain ways of buying raw materials more cheaply from its sources. But um, around the time of Piłsudski's death in 1935, around the time that uh, Józef Beck, the Polish foreign minister, now becomes a very powerful figure in the Polish government, something changes and uh, Polish colonial demands are now used not so much so that they actually win colonial concessions for Poland, but to put some diplomatic pressure on the Western powers, especially Britain and France. And this is most extreme in 1938. And as you know, 1938 is the year of appeasement, right? Of course, uh, in uh, March uh, of that year, you have the Anschluss of Austria by Nazi Germany. Then at the end of September, you have the Munich conference uh, where Chamberlain and Daladier um, agree to Hitler annexing the Sudetenland. And of course, the Czechs are not even invited. They, they lose uh, uh, their loss of territory decide, is decided by uh, the Western uh, powers. So Józef Beck, this Polish uh, foreign minister, is afraid that the same fate awaits Poland, that uh, at some point the Western powers will sacrifice Gdańsk, Danzig, or the so-called Polish corridor, the Western Pomerania, for the sake of delaying war with Hitler. And he, Josef Beck, realizes that there is another place where appeasement can take place, when territories can be given to Hitler in exchange for peace. And uh, this is, of course, the colonial appeasement that the Western powers did at one point uh, consider, either returning um, the old German colonies to Germany or uh, offering uh, other colonies that Germany had never possessed before, such as the Congo, to Hitler for, for exchange, in, in exchange for, for not going to war, right? For not invading in Europe. So the idea is to turn Hitler's, but also the Western leaders' attention away from Europe uh, toward Africa. Uh, so this is another reason why, uh, for example, in April 1938, right after the Anschluss of Austria, Beck makes secret ar arrangements with the Polish institutions promoting the colonial idea, such as the Maritime and Colonial League, to increase colonial propaganda in Poland, because he wants to show the world that Poland uh, is interested in Africa, that it's perhaps looking for an arrangement with Germany regarding Africa or with Italy. So yes, so again, the idea is to, to turn the world's attention away from Europe toward Africa so that if any appeasement takes place, it does not take place at Poland's cost, at Poland's expensive expense, it takes place at the expense of uh, some minor colonial powers such as Portugal or Belgium. So that's just yet another layer to this <laughs> complicated that's story. That's sneaky. That's really sneaky. Yeah. Uh, diplomacy. Well, that's the decade of the 1930s for you right there. Well, I want to touch on, obviously, I'm going to bring World War II into this, but before we go on to the World War II question, because there is one, and, you know, me, I always have to bring something to do with World War II. I want to know, is there any positives or negatives to the people that actually became colonists? Is there anything interesting that you discovered that these people did, found, or any tragedies, anything along those lines? Well, there is actually a moment in 1934, 1935, 1936, when Polish colonists who 
go to Liberia, consider themselves anti-colonialists, believe it or not. Yeah, they, they, they think that they're actually fighting colonialism. I'm and sorry, this, hold on. What they I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Right. Can you rephrase yeah. that again? That anti-colonialist fighting colonial. Okay, right, okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> pay attention. Um, I'm just I just I was saying that hold on, wait, is he saying the right the right words coming out no, of no, I, right I, now? I did not misspeak. Uh, okay. <laughs> this is right. Yeah, so uh so before use of bank makes colonial uh, aspirations into a diplomatic instrument in the late 1930s. You have the first half of the 1930s when the Poles, especially the Maritime and Colonial League, are actually trying to obtain colonial concessions from the Western powers. First, they tried with Portugal, then with France. It doesn't work. Uh, these powers are too afraid of losing their own privileges. They don't. Uh, they first, Portugal first lets Polish settlers into Angola. Then it becomes afraid that they're going to work with the Germans to undermine Portuguese rule. So they lose their privileges. The French uh, decline Polish requests to, uh, to let Polish settlers into places like Cameroon, uh, so the maritime colony gets fed up, but then it encounters a great opportunity to find uh, economic privileges elsewhere in Africa, and this is Liberia. And the reason is Liberia actually needs Poland's help because Liberia is in trouble. This is the only independent state in Africa, but there is a problem. It practices slavery. Like the Liberian government actually turns a blind eye to a form of forced labor, which uh, is almost equivalent to slavery. Uh, and the Liberian government gets in trouble with the League of Nations, is about to, turn, to be turned into a mandate. But lucky for it, uh, Poland sits on the commission that decides on the matter in the League of Nations, so the Liberian diplomats secretly negotiate with Polish diplomats a deal whereby in exchange for economic privileges in Liberia for Polish settlers, the Polish government will defend Liberia's sovereignty in the League of Nations. So Poland actually uh, contributes quite a bit to Liberia preserving its independence in the mid-30s. And this causes uh, very significant diplomatic repercussions in U.S.-Polish relations, for example, because the U.S. actually considers Liberia its own protectorate, but that's a whole separate story I'm not going to get into. But this is becoming uh, a total and utter mess. I mean... Yes, it's, yes, it's, 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 so, yes, anti-colonialism, right. So, yes, so in order to, to maintain good relations with Liberia, the Liberian government, the Polish settlers who go to Liberia to establish plantations as a result of this deal I just mentioned between the Polish and Liberian governments, Polish settlers uh, need to portray themselves as friendly toward Africans. So they, yes, yeah, so they market themselves as, as essentially anti-colonialists because they, you know, Poland had just saved Liberia from becoming a mandate, becoming a colony. So now the Polish, the, the Poles, the Polish uh, planters, they cannot act just as any other whites in Liberia. So they, they try to present themselves as anti-colonialists, as sort of just, just friendly experts who are there to help out with the economy, to, you know, uh, to sell better products to Liberians and so on and so forth. You know, the, the very people who were looking to, to, to join this, this colonial club uh, were marketing themselves as anti-colonialists. So, uh, yes, so just to, just to add some more. Uh... <laughs> did, it, did it work? Do you know if it worked? No, it didn't really work. It didn't really work. The US made sure it didn't work. It drew attention to every instance of Poles misbehaving toward 
black ladies on steamers uh, or you know um, native workers in the interior of Liberia. Uh, I mean, the Poles, uh, they didn't, they, they could not possibly have acted this out correctly. They, they considered themselves whites, you know, uh, members of this um, European civilization that, that was superior to, to Africans. So this was a um, impossible project to, to carry out, but still interesting. I mean, still, still fascinating because uh, they often use the same discourse to appeal to Liberians and Africans as, uh, as Polish romantics did, you know, in the 19th century. Poland being the Christ of nations, um, the Poles dying for free, for freedom, ours and yours, and so on and so forth. So, uh, so the return of this 19th century discourse in relation to Africa is really fascinating. I mean, that continues, but, obviously, again, I'm going to bring up World War II, I always do this. Uh, it does continue, actually, in the Second World War, there have been instances that, I don't know, I didn't even remember where I came across this evidence, and you, you know what it's like as a historian, you're doing something, and then you find something somewhere that's somewhere that, you know, that you still can't remember where it was. But instances of, of, of Polish soldiers being, you know, these romantic men that are fighting for their freedom, especially in Britain. Same as my grandfather. One of my grandfathers uh, in the 1950s, he was known as the romantic because he opened the door for the ladies and he did all of this, you know, very gentlemanly things that other men didn't do, for example, the British or Americans or whatever. And they were kind of this exotic style of man. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, no, it does. I can, I find an echo of that in an earlier period, but I'm actually starting to work on the period of World War II. I'm very much interested in Polish soldiers who served as British uh, troops in uh, the British colonies of West Africa uh, in the years 1941 to 1943. And they, they faced a real dilemma because they were fighting for Poland's independence, and yet they were serving in British colonies with Africans who were not granted the same, uh, the same political sovereignty by, by their masters, in this case, the British. So so I really, I really find this, this question fascinating of, uh, you know, Europeans, Eastern Europeans, Poles uh, fighting for their own independence while enjoying the benefits of being of the right skin color, right? You know, in Europe, they're reduced to slaves under uh, Nazi Germany, but in Africa, they actually, they, you know, they belong to the ruling class just because they happen to have the right skin tone. So I don't know where to go from here but <laughs> look do you know what this is this is a really interesting topic that once you've done your research once you finish the book once you finish we're going to come back to this because this is a really I mean we could talk about a whole hour let alone just on moral dilemma in this time period but we'll leave it for now because however much I want to delve into this right okay let's go with my world war ii question because you know, we all know Germany invades Poland in September 1939. Soviets invade uh, again on the 17th of September. So literally two weeks later, Poland is divided. I'm not going to give you the whole spiel because you've already heard me on various platforms talking about Poland and Roger Morehouse and many other historians. But there's two. I'm going to give you a two part question, because first of all, what happened to the Poland? Actually, three part. Let's make this a three. Let's make this more difficult for you. What happened to the Polish colonies during the Second World War? What if the Polish state was not destroyed in the Second World War? And I'm going to throw in a doozy here. Does Poland actually become a colony of Germany and the Soviet Union? So three-part question. Go where you think this will take you. Whoa. All right. Um, so just a small correction. Poland never possessed official colonies, colonies in a political sense. It only supported settlements in other powers, colonies, and in South America. 
1939, upon the German invasion, you have a number of Polish settlements in the Paraguayan, Argentinian, Brazilian borderland. And you still have a Polish settlement in Angola and a Polish settlement in Liberia and a series of Polish farms in the borderland between Portuguese Mozambique, uh, Portuguese East Africa, and uh, Southern Rhodesia, which is, of course, a British colony. All of these settlements fail during World War II for a very simple reason. The Polish government does not have the funds to support these very expensive endeavors. These settlements often exist in very inaccessible places in areas that have a climate that is not very well suited to Europeans. So they're experimental farms, basically, now, often created for political reasons rather than economic reasons. I mean, uh, the, the, the farms, the plantations in Liberia, for example, were um, purposely uh, established in an area where uh, the Polish uh, planters could get in contact with local princes to incite a rebellion against the Liberian government, right? That was sort of the other side of this uh, Liberian project that I did not mention. While uh, acting friendly toward the uh, Liberian government, the Poles were actually making efforts to undermine it. But anyway, that was a tangent. Yeah, so, th- so these, these elements are way too expensive to, to uh, maintain during World War II, when, of course, the Polish government is in exile, first in Angers in France, then in London. It has to support Polish refugees all over the world, right? It has to pay for the war effort. I mean, it still has a budget, right? It still has other expenses. So, so very slowly, um, all of these settlements are either sold to, to companies, to governments, or simply uh, abandoned. The, the cash flow from the Polish government is cut off. So that's, that's what happens to the settlements, to the so-called colonies. And the second part of your question was about what if World War II never happened or what if World War II did not result in the destruction of the Polish state? Uh, Well, that question hinges upon all the possible scenarios, right? I mean, why, why does World War II or why does the invasion of Poland not happen? Does it not happen because... Poland, uh, the Polish government decides to become a junior partner of the Nazi government, of the German government, uh, and joins this crusade against the Soviet Union. Doesn't that happen because the British and the French decide to attack Germany from the West when um, when Poland is attacked in September 1939, right? So uh, first you need to sort of pick your scenario and then maybe I can answer the question. But, uh, well, I think that, yes, that I, th- I think that eventually Poland would have obtained some concessions from the Western powers. Uh, perhaps it would have been given, you know, an area to farm coffee in Angola or, you know, an area, a concession, economic concession, some kind of mines in the Rhodesia etc etc so yes I, I think it was going in that in that direction but it's 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 a question that it's impossible to answer it's alternative history so um don't yeah, shoot so, the alternative so. history fun person <laughs> i love a bit of alternative history just to make it more into because every historian has a different opinion and that's what makes it really interesting i think we should de- we should definitely do a what if poland podcast what if there was no polish bolshevik war what if Józef piłsudski lived beyond 1935 i think do you know what i'm so going to do this in 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 a couple of weeks time i'm going to get together a big load of 
with Polish historians and we're going to do a What If podcast just for fun. All right. Well, my uh, uh, colleagues who are professional historians will disavow me, but that's all right. <laughs> it's okay. Oh, there'll be there'll be loads of PhD history because it's look, we're talking about popular history here. This is not academia at the end of the day, even though you are an academic, you know, it, it makes it that in that kind of thing interesting. I mean, obviously, apart from those silly programs like um, what's that one on on uh, on Prime? My brain's gone gone. You know, oh, the man in the high tower, for example. That's that was just ridiculous. But you know, it's a bit of fun at the end of the day. Yeah. No, I'm uh, I'm open to the idea. Let's do it. Anyway, finish your final question because that's the one I'm the most interested in. Does in theory Poland become a colony of Germany and Soviet Union? What do you think? What's your opinion? <sighs> yes. My very short and brief answer is yes. We can stick with that. It does become a colony, or even worse than a colony. Let's uh, stick with that. I would say I would say the western provinces of Poland, you know, Pomerania, uh, the Poznan area, they uh, are incorporated directly into Germany. And there you can perhaps see some classic colonial policies on the part of the Germans where they try to assimilate some Poles who are not considered purely Polish, right? The Kashubians or the Silesians, right? They, um, they, they try to assimilate them like the French did with, uh, you know, Africans. Uh, assimilationism, right? The, the French colonial policy. So there you can, so, so yes, so in, in the areas directly annexed into Germany, into the Reich, you can see some colonial policies, of course, coupled with totalitarian policies, genocidal policies toward Poles where they are, where the intelligentsia is killed, just like in the general government, right? Where, you know, priests are killed, where the people are deported. So this, this goes well, well beyond classic sort of British-style colonialism. What Germany does in the general government, however, is, of course, more akin to what they did in Namibia, let's say, right? I mean, this goes this goes beyond beyond the colonialism, which of course was at times genocidal and was something that should be condemned by all means. But what happens in occupied Poland is is, is a genocide, right? I mean, it's it's a uh, it's a genocide where Jews, of course, are targeted in the first place, but the Slavs, including the Poles, are just awaiting their turn. So economically and in terms of human life, this is um, this is the worst possible form of colonialism. And the Soviets, well, that's, yes, that's colonialism too, because, uh, of course, they create a system, an economic system, whereby the, the Polish economy is uh, supposed to serve the core, the Soviet Union. But you can also argue that the entire Soviet Union was one huge colony, right, where everything is... Uh, Every economic system or every economic relationship is meant to propel the Soviet industrialization at the cost of human lives, at the cost of human well-being, right? So uh, I don't even think that Polish, uh, there's the Soviet occupation of the Eastern territories um, in 1939 to 1941 is anything special. I mean, the Soviets just sort of applied the same, the same system of exploitation uh, to that area for those two years. I'm not so, going to ask about post-war because we're just going to complicate things. No, let's stop and, there. I think we, can, we, can, we can talk <laughs> probably for another 45 minutes on, on post-war. But listen, this has been really enlightening, really interesting. I've learned so much about Polish history that I didn't even think existed. I mean, who, like I said, who would ever put Poland and colonialism in the same sentence? 
ever till you went and found that article and decided to explore it more uh, serendipity <laughs> exactly so thanks to you we have this fantastic book remind our readers exactly what the name of the book poland in a colonial world order subtitle adjustments and aspirations uh, 1918 to 1939 perfect go grab yourselves a copy because i definitely am going to start reading mine back to back because it's it's been very interesting and this podcast has been very interesting and it's inspired me to go and look at other aspects of polish history not just the second world war ladies and gentlemen shock horror horror there we go <laughs> Piotr, thank you so much for joining me everybody go and grab yourselves a copy of this book thank you so much thank you so much alina this has been a pleasure thank you